Hello everyone, if you're new here, my name's Mark, I'm one of the pastors and we're glad you're with us. Uh, some of you are in Canada, some around the world, some places. We're really honored that you're here with us. If those of you that are, uh, this is your church home, you know kind of who I am. But I'm really, I have to say to you folks, I really miss you. It's, uh, it's, it's doing church this way is just kind of a little bit out of my comfort zone. And, and, and the chaos that I feel that we're in, and, and it's, it's even hard to put into words for me. There's fear going on with the economy and social repercussions. There's missing community and friends and family members not being able to be with people. There's a sadness and an anger that's going on in people because certain things aren't going right for them. There's that and so much more. Why is God allowing this? The other day on CNN, Anderson Cooper was asking, where is God in this pandemic? And that's what many people are asking. In fact, that's what I'm asking a little bit. Years ago, due to a philosophy of religion class that I was taking, well, along with a very aggressive professor who later when we were talking said that one of his goals was to get me to deny my faith as an evangelical Christian. One of the things that arose in that class was all kinds of questions about why, a God of, of love and a God of evil, all kinds of questions like that. And it threw me for a loop to the place where I was ready to postpone being a pastor until I got a new perspective on this. In fact, I believe I had this God encounter that changed my life. And I want to share a little bit of that with you. I was at the time, I was studying the book of Job. Because it is asking the same questions over that we were asking. If you have your Bibles, uh, turn to the book of Job. In fact, we're going to read together in chapter 1, verses 1 to 12. And, and just to mention, that Job is the oldest book we have in the Old Testament. And the, and it's, but it's asked some of the key questions that we're asking still today. Job chapter 1, verses 1. If you are able and willing, I know it's a little different, but please stand. These are the most important words you're going to hear today. God's word to us. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. The man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was, here's the key, the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to take turns holding feasts in their homes, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When the period of feasting had run its course, Job had sent for each of them and have them purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. One day, the angels came and present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where are you coming from? Satan answered, uh, from roaming through the earth, going back and forth in it. When Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is not one on earth like him. He's blameless, an upright man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied, have you not put a hedge around him so his household and everything he has? Have you blessed the work of his hands so that the flocks and herds have spread throughout the land? But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your hands, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then, then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray you would help us understand this and apply these life-giving principles to our life and our walk with you. Help us with this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Got some materials that I want to work through today from the Old Testament challenge that we're studying. And also from Ravi Zacharias and John Ortberg, I want to pull together some stuff for us today and talk about this amazing man, Job. The setting of the book of Job is in the land of Uz. We don't know where, where Uz was other than it says it was east. Well, there's a map here and there's a place on that that some people say that, well, that, that's where it kind of was. The whole point is it's ambiguous so all of us can relate. This is a book for all of us. The problems of the book of Job are the problems of the human race and they're problems that we all face. The amount of blessing that Job was experiencing seems to be directly proportional, proportional to the amount of obedience that he offers to God. And so that is what the, the evil one is, is jumping on and desiring to flip Job and un, a misunderstanding of who God is and how he operates. Troubles coming to the land of us. And by the way, all of us in one time or another will live in the land of pain or fear or chaos. It's the land of us. Well, Job was there. Now, it's best to understand, if you're going to understand this book, to understand it as a drama where there's two stages, an upper stage and a lower stage. The upper stage is the heavens. God and the angels are there. The lower stage is the earth. And the earth cannot see into the upper stage, but the upper stage knows exactly what's going on in the lower and it really is the first recognition that we have of a reality of the seen and the unseen world in our life. And the issues are this. Do bad things happen? Why do bad things happen to good people? And how should we deal with pain and suffering and evil with God being a God of love? How does all of that come together? The drama unfolds. There's two tests and two responses from Job. The first test is that Job loses all of his earthly belongings. All, the Sabians come in, it says, and steal the oxen and the, go and the donkeys. All of his servants are killed. The sheep are killed. The camels are stolen, stolen by the rotten Chaldeans. And a uh, storm strikes this house that all of his children are feasting in. And all of them die. Amazing. Job's response, even more amazing. Job chapter 1, starting in verse 20. And at that, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. And then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I have come from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all of this, Job did not sin by charging God with any wrongdoing. Wow. That's the first cycle. Second cycle again starts in chapter 2. And if you go to verse 7. Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores on the soul, from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraping himself as it was as he was sitting amongst the ashes. His wife said to him in response, Are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die, she said. He replied, Are you talking like a foolish woman? Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? Same Hebrew word as evil. In all of this, God did not sin in what Job said. Wow. Another round. See, the evil one was talking here about um, a quid pro quo. He was saying the only reason that Job is good to you and fears you is you are good to him. If you would pull back and God allowed the evil one to touch Job up to that point. The evil one said he would, he would curse you to your face. 
Basically, he's saying this. Why is, God, why is Job devoted to God? Satan, the accuser, is insisting that Job's devotion is strictly based on him getting all kinds of good things from God. Satan says that Job loves God the way children love the ice cream man. He loves God the way a drug addict loves the drug dealer. It's all quid pro quo. You scratch my back, I scratch yours. Satan is arguing if you turn off the faucet of blessing, then Job will turn off the faucet of devotion. Job is simply doing and being, and being so-called loving or in relationship with God because of all that he can get from God. People think that God is on trial in this whole book. God is not on trial at all. The human, human beings are on tr- trial. We are on trial because the book is, is the evil one is asking a question: Are do we really love God? And is there such a way of is there such a thing as covenantal love? Does God has God created us to love each other and to love Him in good or in bad? Or are we just pawns in this whole thing? The main God's main purpose is not to convince Satan of anything. God's main purpose is to speak to us today about how we run our lives. And how do we simply respond back when things are going good our way or terrible our way? Chapter 2, verse 11. It says here that Job's three friends that I think we need to learn some lessons on. Aliphaz, the Temite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namathite, heard about all the troubles that have come upon Job. They set out from their homes and met together in agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. The word comfort, I think, is the word hood, sympathetic. Be sympathetic with him. It means to rock back and forth. They weren't just going to be with Job. They were going to share in the pain that he was in. Verse 12, when they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. And they began to weep aloud and tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. They sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word because they saw how great his suffering was. In silence for seven days and seven nights, I think we can learn some things. Even today, though, the Jewish people say, if you go to their, their mourning services, and where they're mourning the death of a family member, no one speaks unless they are asked to. And even then, you don't speak much. Everyone is quiet and deliberately quiet. They're grieving. I'm sad to say many times we try to fix people when we go and visit them in the hospital or even grieve with them at home. We try to fix people or we give clever advice or we try to make it better or we have these these Christian platitudes that we say, oh, it'll be okay, I promise. We can promise nothing. Folks, a number of years ago where I thought I was was so sad, I thought I was going to die. And I'm not exaggerating. One of my best friends phoned me and said, I can be there in four hours. You have no idea how important that is, was then and is to this very day. And he didn't have any answers, but he knew about grieving. He knew about death. He knew about all kinds of things that way. And our friendship was solidified because of that. It goes right back to this book of Job. Fascinating. Do you have friends that will sit with you and grieve without any platitudes or anything else. 
Do you have friends that you will sit with them and grieve? You see, both those questions are very important because the land of us will come upon us soon. Just a word to our, to our, our small group leaders. You are our first, our first responders, as it were. Because many times you are in pe- taking uh, the load off all kinds of other people when you meet with your group and you love each other and care for each other. And there's all kinds of times where people have been in and out of the hospital before I even hear that they're in the hospital. Always taken care of by our small group leaders. I just think we've got some of the best small group leaders around. I want to honor you. But I also want to remind you of the most important things that you do in loving those people when they're grieving. So finally, in seven days of silence, Job starts talking. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. And it doesn't say that he cursed God. He didn't curse God, but he cursed the day that God made him. He cursed the day where a boy was born, the text says. And I think it's just a sneaky way to curse God, actually, is what's going on. And Job spews out all kinds of anger and all kinds of stuff. And so the three friends respond, and that's where they blew it. The first guy, Eliphaz, he argues that innocent don't perish and the upright do not get destroyed. Therefore, there must be sin in your life. That's where the the logic goes. Bildad gets a little more direct and he says, your children died because they had sin. They had it coming. They had sin in their life. And Zophar suggested that Job's suffering was a result of personal sin. He called Job to repentance. And in all three cases, Job disagrees. And they have a number of cycles. All the three, all four of them would speak. Job disagreeing and arguing with each of these guys, and they would cycle through and all they would say. Folks, I want to push pause again on the story and talk a little bit about the doctrine of retribution. It's a heresy that's going on in our, in the, in our Christian culture today about suffering. Many people believe, as Christians, that goodness results in prosperity. Wickedness results in suffering. All misfortune is due to our bad behavior. All of the goodness that we have is due to our good behavior. And they believe that God always treats us directly correlated with how good or bad we are. This destroys grace. We just talked about that last weekend, about the goodness and greatness, the amazingness of grace. If that's what people believe, that in many ways that God is simply a vending machine. You've got to do the right things, push the right buttons and get what you want. That destroys grace. The doctrine of retribution was as alive in Job's day as it is in ours. In fact, Eliphaz goes on to say in chapter 4 verse 12 that he kind of had a word from God and there's a lot of words from God that aren't from God. They're people saying things that they shouldn't. We believe many times wrongly there's a direct correlation with our circumstances. The danger is it's close to the truth but it isn't the truth. By that I mean this, God does love to bless our obedience. And he does use discipline for our disobedience, for it, because he loves us. We do determine some things in our circumstances. And I quote a lady who smoked two or three packs a day of cigarettes, but was angry with God because God gave her cancer at 70. God had nothing to do with lung cancer that she had. She did that. But you see, we, we don't want to take responsibility. And we always think that everything should work out just hunky-dory for us because we're supposed to be the Christians or the people of God. See, if you agree with this theory, then God being the vending machine, all we have to do is put the right change in to get our treat. 
And it destroys grace. So I'm not, and if you destroy grace, then we don't pursue God for God's sake. We want to just get the things from God that we can? It's not it at all. When things go well, it isn't simply because of us. Or when things go badly, that isn't because of us either. Life is not that way. It's about God and grace. Now this is a time for true friendship. These three friends to lean in rather than run away. And lean in, not by talking too much, but simply being there. They should have said, Job, what's wrong? What happened here? He would respond, I don't know. And they should have said, well, we don't know either. But we're with you. And they didn't. They didn't. Don't turn away from the unknown because you don't know about it. Don't let the unknown stop you from faith in what you do know. A God of grace. This almost tripped me up in university years ago. But we think unless we can understand it or control it, that we should just run from it. No. Some things are left in mystery around God. And as, as uh, Calvin said, there's some things that it's unlawful for us to even try to figure out. So later Job is at the end and he wants this corrected. And in chapter 23 he says, I want to have a face-to-face -face with God. I want to bring him into court and sue him. Interesting. Well, in chapter 38, God shows up and God speaks for four chapters. And God says, okay, you asked for my input, I'm going to talk to you. Now it's interesting, God never seems to address the real questions that Job has. But God does point to all that he has done in creation in understanding the type of God that he is. He is the kind of God that creates such a way that the morning stars sing together and angels shout with joy. He is a God that delights in all the things of creation. There's no quid pro quo there because he creates things that, that don't, there's no beauty to them, there's no apparent strategic value in them, and yet joy, God has joy in them. God doesn't do any of that. He loves because he can't help himself. Let me give you some idea, some, some elements of that. God make, knows where he makes it rain in the desert where no one else will be redeemed in any way by that. Even flowers. He makes flowers and nobody but him sees them. And they're not that hot of flowers actually sometimes. And it, 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 to a Jewish people who are desert people, pouring water on the desert sand is a waste of good water. But that's the kind of God that we have. He is generous. When there's, when there's no meaning for it, or no, no, no reason for it. And he loves the creation that he's made. He makes the ostrich that can't fly. A bird that can't fly. Why would you make a bird that can't fly? Alas, God. Because at the end he says, even though she's a bad mother, have you ever seen her run? Yeah, she can run like a horse. God's got this sense of humor as well. Is he's proving to the evil one and to us that life is not about you scratch my back and I scratch yours. The whole point is God loves even when it's goofy for him to love. Think of another. He talks about the behemoth in chapter 40, verse 15. That's a hippo. He says that was one of the best days of my creating when I made a hippo. Hippos are fast, I'm sorry, fat monsters. They kill people. 
God says, I still love them. God delights in the wild ox, although it will never pull a plow. He delights in donkeys that never get tamed and ridden. He delights in hawks, and all that they do is soar around. He delights in crocodiles. Leviathan is a crocodile. And, it's, and they seem utterly useless and mean. But God can't help himself. That's what he gets to. God makes these things because he, he revels in the beauty and delights and is joy-filled in the strategic creation of all the weird animals that he made. He loves to give the God of the upper stages, the God who is endlessly good, uncontrollably generous, and irrationally loving. He gives no other reason than that to, be, to have created everything. And Job never finds out why he, that all the questions that he has, he is simply overcome with the goodness and greatness and amazingness of God. And in chapter 42, verse 5 and 6, he says, My ears have heard you, now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. In other words, I have encountered you and I am completely undone because you are one of grace and mercy and goodness. And you do not love us simply because we love you back. You love us because you can't help but love us. The Hebrew way of saying, I want to start a whole new thing, is what he said here, I despise myself. He repents, in other words, and he wants to change. Well, folks, quickly, the rest of the story, Job's friend learn, friends learn a number of lessons. By the way, it says in that 42.7, God says that they were wrong, Job was right, and he says, I'm angry with you. And then it says, you ask Job to pray for you, and when Job prays for you, you shall be forgiven. And Job starts acting like God at this point. In other words, when he prays for and forgives his friends and asks God to forgive his friends, is like the goofiness of God that loves and offers forgiveness to you and I so often. Chapter 42, let me get there. Chapter 42, starting in verse 12. I want you to see a couple things here. In fact, do we have it? No, I don't. Chapter 42, verse 12, says that the daughters were mentioned, not the sons in all the, that Joe, in Job's last part of his life. He still has seven sons, but his three daughters are mentioned. The names of the boys are not mentioned, although back then they should have been. He is cross-cultural on this. He's starting to do things that only God would do. So to be like God, you, you, you'll do different things and you will raise certain things that weren't raised before in culture. Jemima is the name of the first daughter. And by the way, Jemima means, is another word for a dove and it relates to how beautiful she was. Keziah. And that was, it means cinnamon. She was kind of a spicy woman, I guess. Then there's Kervan Hapuch. And it's the oddest one because it means horn of eyeshadow. He named his daughter after makeup. Well, who does that? A God or a guy that's absolutely over the moon that he has a daughter. That's who does that. In the ancient world, sons were strategic, not daughters. But Job turns that around. In fact, it goes on to say that he leaves an inheritance for his daughters. Not, not only his sons, but his daughters also. And in that culture, that's unheard of. 
Why? Because Job is starting to think and to act like God. Just like God does. He loves people, whether they love him back or not. You see, Satan is dead wrong about Job and about God and about our world. Dead wrong. The book of Job is not about an odd, odd cosmic wager. It's about us understanding the goodness and grace and beauty of the Lord that we serve. And there's times that you and I are not going to be able to understand why he allows evil and pain in our lives. You and I need some friends that will sit with us and grieve over this. Before the land of us hits you, you need to get into nature and get wonder back in your life. I remember when I was depressed going through my trouble that I had years ago. And a great friend of mine looked and said, You looked at me and said, You need to get wonder back in your life. You've worked too hard, you've hit an emotional wall. You need to get back. And he said, you need to come out to here to Vancouver and sit on the beach for a week. And I did. It's in the middle of the wintertime. Poured rain. I can take you to the beach where I was down in, in White Rock. And I did a lot of yelling. But God showed up. Men and women, I love you. You need to realize, us is coming. If you're not in a small group, get in a small group. If you don't have friends that will, not, that will sit with you for seven days and seven nights, as it were, you need to find some great friends. If you don't have those people that you would sit with, you are not woven into the community of faith like you should be. You need friends. And it, this is one of the reasons that we're so broken in this time of, because we're separated from each other. The community, the fellowship of our church is on pause. It's killing us. Although God's doing amazing things elsewhere. Don't get me wrong. I'm glad for that. But these are hard times. Jesus, God's son, came from the upper stage to the lower stage. And he took our pain and our suffering so that one day we may leave the lower stage and live forever in the upper stage because of his grace. He is great. He is good. He gives and forgives. He can't help himself. That's the God that we serve. All of our questions will never be answered. But we know who we believe in. And that's the God, Yahweh, who loves us more than we'll ever understand. Lord, thanks for today. Thanks for the truth of your word. We pray in Jesus' name for the people around us. Maybe we're even sitting beside those that we're praying for now. We ask in your name that you will touch them and change them. And that you would use us to be true friends of each other. Thank you for our church. Protect us now in these days of apartness. Continue to pour out your blessing on your people, we pray. And give us unction and courage to make and keep great spiritual friends together. And we will do that as we honor and serve you in Jesus' name.